Welcome to Change Hackers, providing daily insight and inspiration for people changing their world. I'm your host, Tony Cook, and I invite you to join me today in conversation with someone on the front line of driving change and transformation. My guest today is Oscar Rodriguez. Oscar is founder and director of Architecture and Food, a design consultancy specializing in building integrated agriculture, which he founded in 2012 and which has been at the forefront of the urban agriculture movement. Oscar is a registered architect, educated at Cambridge, Cardiff and UCL, and has broad practical experience from 10 years at world-class practices such as Foster and Partners. I spoke to Oscar online from his home in London. So Oscar, welcome to Change Hackers. Hello. Hi, great to have you with us. So I, I've been a, an admirer of what you do for, for quite some time. I, um, having started life as a, a farmer, um, uh, I've always had this sort of soft spot in my heart for growing food. Um, and then um, as an amateur uh, designer, someone with, with an interest in architecture and design and so on, um, it, it, it's, I started to get really interested in the whole idea of urban agriculture, probably going back, I don't know, in the aftermath of foot and mouth disease, um, 2001, 2002. And there was a lot of speculating around what does the future of food production look like? And some, you know, a, a, a handful of radicals, of pioneers, of people that everyone else thought were completely crazy started talking about urban agriculture. And, and um, you know, the people who owned the debate, the, the farmers who owned land out in the countryside, just thought it was a ridiculous idea. And yet, and yet here we are. So when I met you, um, well, this must be five or six years ago now? Yeah. Um, probably. Um, uh, and, and, we, and we started talking. I was just fascinated by this idea that actually it was starting to, to you know you were come at, coming at it from the other direction you know from out of architecture taking an interest in food production but not just that it was the whole philosophy of it and you know kind of resilient communities and so on so just share with us how on earth did you get started on this um okay so if you if we were to sort of trek back to sort of childhood formative um my parents are Spanish. I was born and raised in London. Every summer we'd go to Spain. So I'd get two months of living in the country. Um, the counterpointing, the, 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 the kind of urban, um, sort of the, the rigorously urban life that you have in London. And so in Spain, that, that, that complete sort of, I mean, it's not opposite, but it's it's just so different that you, you you your mind just naturally wants to meld the two things together, <laughs> and you kind of think to yourself, okay, well, you know, what is a sort of uh, a balance between the two? Um, and I remember coming across this place called Mondariz Balneario in a small town called Mondariz. It's a spa town. There used to be a a fascist um, spa bathhouse there. Beautiful structure, burnt down in the nineteen seventies. Insurance jobby. Um, and then over the following um, 15 years, it was kind of taken over by nature. So it, was, it literally had trees going, growing through the middle of its sort of granite shell. And I remember that being a very particular kind of like, okay, what is this relationship between you know, nature and artifice? And, and, and I guess as, as I sort of began my training as an architect, that kind of, that, that was definitely still there. That was always a question. And I, I still have it, and I think you can't, um, I don't think you'll ever find an architect who disagrees with this, but 
any visualization you do of a building, if it doesn't have plants in it, there is no life. <laughs> it's a diagram. It's not a picture of a potential reality. Um, and so taking that as the sort of basis, I remember back in 2007, I was kind of challenged on what I cared about as an architect. And I, I've got to be totally honest, I had no idea. I, I didn't really know why I wanted to be an architect by that point. Hadn't really Who was challenging at the time? It was, it was because I didn't get a job at a, uh, at a particular architect's practice. That and that was the feedback you had? And the feedback was um, because I'd been working at Foster and Partners. Uh, the feedback was he's too much of a Fosterite. And um, I don't know what he cares about. Right. And that set off a very interesting sort of crisis of identity. <laughs> um, so I really started looking at things that I thought were important. And so I started from the beginning with, you know, water, food, this, all, all the basics, and really started to sort of build my knowledge base. And if, if you had met me during that period, you would have you would have probably put your hand on my shoulder and said, mate, are you all right? Because I went through a deep depression. We shouldn't be laughing about that, really. <laughs> well, I say, like, you know, how are you doing? And, I'm, uh, and I'd sort of look at them sort of starry-eyed and say, well, I think we're all screwed. <laughs> Just because, like, the, the magnitude of the problem, as soon as you started to get into climate change, is still, you know, you read your, your Richard Heinberg and, 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 you know, your James Lovelock and, and the magnitude of the problem becomes enormous. Mm. So, I, you know, the more I sort of researched, the more I sort of gravitated towards this idea about food. Food, obviously, as a nexus of, you know, all of the components of, of life, really, because it's, it's, it's the water, the energy, the... Know, the, the chemistry, the biology, the physics, it's everything all together. And again, I, I mean, by this point, I'd, I'd sort of worked in architecture for a while and, and the roof had always been a, a thing uh, uh, that, that, that was never sort of satisfactorily sort of utilised. And, 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 and again, just very organically, these sort of themes came together and I started thinking about, okay, so where's the excess capacity? Where can we grow food? And, and the first thing that I did um, was uh, write my part two dissertation. So um, this this whole thing started before my part two architecture sort of training. So once I went into Cardiff University and started did my dissertation, I, I did it on a on the uh, it, it was based around the calculation of how much food could be grown on London's flat roofscape. Uh, and it was uh, published in Urban Design magazine um, last year. So, um, okay. and it, it's very interesting. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing where, you know, these large council estates with their foundations built to safety standards back in the 70s can happily take on a greenhouse on top. They could, you know, and and... I think I had uh, one particular figure, which is quite interesting, in the borough of Islington. There are something like seven flat-roofed council estates, which together would probably um, do about forty percent of the, you know, food requirement that the the sort of fresh produce re um, requirements of Islington. So it's significant. I mean, just you know, applying coefficients to area. And as basic as that, so it's, it, it doesn't go into wastage, it doesn't go wow. into the real sort of nitty-gritty of it. 
but when you realize just how much roof space we have um it's really quite impressive and and, and given that it's all of it's sort of just degrading under sunlight um it's it's a maintenance liability to most of its owners the thinking was that you know here's a real source of value um to the city and i mean i should stress like the the I guess the, the architect's approach to urban agriculture has been to look at the, the rooftop more than anything. And that's, and that's where I focused. And, and that's within a very wide ecosystem of different approaches. So you have the vertical farming tribe that's looking at um, the sort of the, the, the warehouse uh, water-based growing solutions, uh, really exploiting the vertical and stacking these hydroponic beds as per growing underground and um, grow up, um, which I, I wonder if your uh, listeners might have heard of. Um, and then of course you've got the sort of open air, um, soil-based community garden in, in, in those sort of uh, residual spaces sometimes, maybe it's just a little a meanwhile space that's about to be developed um, and sustain is obviously at the, at the forefront of, of that particular advocacy. Um, the, I guess the little niche that I wanted to sort of tackle um, was the rooftop and it's, it, it really had to have the architecture in it because I, I really wanted to build upon my skill set rather than sort of put it aside and um, and, and, and do something new. I, I think sometimes there's a loss when you do something new. There's, there's uh, I think, well, I hope, there's a rich seam of potential when you sort of apply a set of skills to an area that doesn't necessarily benefit from those skills. It's when you start fusing two disparate things together that, that I think, you know, opportunities sometimes arise. I mean, the funny thing is with cities is that Food um, was the governing sort of design parameter. Um, but of course, as soon as the trains came along and Karen Steele sort of goes into this in hungry cities, um, that relationship got blown apart, i.e. any city could be supplied en masse using the railway system. So this is, the, the, I mean, the, the approach of sort of introducing rooftop greenhouses and rooftop farming back to the city it's 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 a bit of a return to some basic principles. I mean, you've been at this for for a few years now, campaigning for put, uh, developing conceptual models and and, and you know um, visualizations and so on, and and had countless meetings with building owners, with supermarket chains. And so, what's what's been the response? I mean, it's not. I mean, you know, on the face of it, it's not a rocket science idea, is it? You've got a flat roof. It's an opportunity to grow some food on it. Um, uh, you know, where, where, where's the barriers? Um, I mean, there are so many, and I think I've, I think I've come across most of them now. <laughs> I can't imagine there could be any more. It can be anything from just simply, you know, someone underneath saying, "I don't want anything on my roof," <laughs> so straight up NIMBY to lease provisions like in, in, in whatever lease or whatever freehold agreement in the title and the deed restrictive covenants there's so there's the, there's that whole raft of possibilities i mean uh, whenever i have these meetings with potential building owners i literally i, I tell them 
getting a, a, a rooftop greenhouse is a bit like aligning stars <laughs> or kicking a camel through the eye of a needle. Um, it really means, uh, you know, like everyone being on board because there are so many stakeholders in a city. I mean, um, so how, how do those conversations start? I mean, is, is this you approaching them because you see their rooftop and think there's a good opportunity there? Or, or is it them coming to you and saying, look, we'd like to explore this idea? Uh, and, so, and then and you prepare them for the battle it's going to be. Yeah, indeed, um, it's both. Um, so at the moment, I'm uh, I'm in the in the middle of a a sort of big sweep of a hundred. I've identified 140 rooftops in London. So far, I have. Oh, and here's the big barrier: finding out who the owners of a building are. Really. And it gets very interesting because some people don't necessarily want to answer your question when you call okay. them. London and its property market, it's its a bit of a closed system. It's not very transparent at all. And, and that uh, would surprise yeah. a lot of listeners from elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might not be a surprise to Londoners, but it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, so, it's a surprise uh, to me, though. I I would have thought we'd, we've got a fairly transparent um, legal system within uh, you know, around property and land uh, within the UK that that would enable you to find any that kind of information out quite quite easily. I mean, by all means, go on the land registry, find out who the um, sort of uh, the owners are, and then try and contact them. <laughs> that's the part. That's, that's the part. That's the hard bit, right? hard bit is not even Google has gotten into, into those depths. Um, so there is definitely a, a barrier, to, barrier to entry there. Then, I mean, so, so, so yeah, so I've been approaching these people. So far out of 140, I've only found 30 owners um, oh. and I've contacted them. Um, the two of them came back. One was, one would have been absolutely amazing. It's an institution. Um, and one with really good thematic synergies with rooftop gardening. It's it's Charles Darwin House in in, in London. So you know. Um, nevertheless, what we're what we're trying to do is put a rooftop greenhouse hydroponics school. Yeah. yeah. Um, 150 square meters, maybe 20 people at a time, offering courses and and visits and 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 those sort of activities. Um, so one was one was uh, Charles Darwin House, another one was um, a sort of private office um, uh, operator. And the response is always, "This is a really lovely idea. Um, I can see the future in it." However, <laughs> and it could be anything it, from the technical to the personal to the political to the to, to the legal. I've I've even had. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have enough bandwidth. This is from a perspective sort of um, stakeholder, I guess. I don't have enough bandwidth at the moment with my work to go through the lease to see if there are any restrictive covenants on, on whether or not we can go forward with this. Um, and sometimes it's just plain petty. It's just that they, they can't be bothered. They don't want to be dealing with something else. So, yeah, but it's understandable. A city's kind of evolved as this crystallization of all these stakeholderships in, in built form. Um, as soon as you try to put something in, it's got to consult with everyone. Everyone's got to be in agreement. And putting a rooftop greenhouse, growing food on a building, 
Again, it feels like it shouldn't be a problem, but it seems to be. <laughs> and, and yet elsewhere in the world, there are, yeah. I wouldn't say, I mean, it's, it's far from becoming mainstream yet, but it, there, there are increasing numbers of, of examples uh, in, in New York, in in, uh, in the Netherlands, for some reason, there seems to be a little bit of a, a movement uh, on, on on this. Yes, um, but it seems to be more on new builds than yeah. than on retrofit. Yeah, I mean, is, is that you know, is is that much less problematic? It is um, because obviously you can design it in. Um, you you know that stakeholdership becomes part of the initial conversation, so it's not. An unknown that sort of comes in out of nowhere and so therefore you can design around it you can make sure that it fits and that it's accommodated appropriately so and it's um, part of the initial building concept exactly. as well yeah so, um, we've got one in the works not uh, my consultancy but um, something and sons have um, sort of proposed well done a feasibility study for a rooftop chili farm um, so, so they've done a great job there. So, you know, hopefully we'll have a rooftop greenhouse in, in London operating soon. I mean, we've got some examples of, of rooftop greenhouses in London, but not necessarily ones that are open to the public and that sort of, you know, um, offer hydroponic training. So that's interesting. So, so, I mean, you talked about that and, and a lot of people listening might think that, well, that sounds like competitors to you yeah. with the idea. Um, uh, but it, what, what came across was that well, that's a victory for the idea. Yeah, well, it, I, I mean, it has to be given given the yeah, yeah. resistance to it. It kind of needs that activation energy, and in this and and do you genuinely believe that that with one or two examples in this in in London, yes. that 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 will start to pave the way for for greater level of adoption? Yeah, we need to demystify the idea. Um, but we also need to test it because it's not easy. Okay, so in America and Canada, you've got two major examples. You've got Gotham Greens and you've got Luther Farms. Gotham Greens have built their um, greenhouses on top of industrial buildings um, and on top of new build buildings, like a new build supermarket in Gowanus. I'm going to say they've got a, a Whole Foods market. Exactly. In the and then on top of uh, and then on top of a soap factory in Chicago, yeah. Method. Now, they seem to be doing well. Um, I mean, they haven't expanded. Uh, I, I think that their next uh, greenhouse is going to be one that's not on top of the building. So immediately, you know, the, the idea, in as much as it sort of seems sensible on, 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 on certain measures, it may still need a dramatic increase in food price before it becomes really, really mainstream. Um, so at this point, then, I mean, then again, you also have Luther Farms. Now, so, sorry, Gotham Greens sells wholesale. Luther Farms sells direct to consumer. And so retains the full retail value of the produce that they produce, which obviously is, is, is limited. It's because they, they're limited in terms of space. Now, those two companies seem stable, but they're not rocketing. Um, so, and, and food prices are still extremely low. Um, I mean, in the UK, they are rising. And um, what has become apparent recently is since Brexit, is that um, sort of major sort of operators are, 
either shedding their <laughs> their, their, their raspberries or uh, as was announced in, in, in the newspapers a few months ago um, are leaving them to rot just because they can't afford the labor um, to pick them or or they're, they're having their margins completely wiped out. Um, so there will come a point where alternative forms of production might become incentivized. So have you, have you got a sense of that? Because I mean, if you, if, you, if you took a parallel example like, um, I don't know, um, renewable energy, yeah. um, you know, solar PV uh, units or something like that. Okay, so probably not the best of examples in that the the cost per unit of those has come down over the years. You get that kind of volume effect mm-hmm. um, as more are produced. Um, but by the same token, there's been this sort of um, break even point where cost of fossil fuel energy, yep. you know, whatever that's cheap, it's, you never get the payback on renewables. But as fossil fuels become more expensive, you know, oil, oil per barrel or coal per ton or whatever starts starts increasing in price, you get to a point where actually suddenly it's viable, and then renewables takes off. Yeah. You know, so you, are you kind of imagining a similar kind of scenario with conventional food production? At the, yeah. At, at some point, if food prices uh, like the, like the, this kind of alternative form of production competing against a, a, an industry that has matured for the last 50 years, the only way that it's going to sort of take over or, or, or sort of gain enough traction to sort of, you know, um, just take its, its bit of the market, whether or not they dominate or just occupy a certain share of the market is up to the gods. But yes, I mean, as, as with renewables, yeah, maybe maybe something as, as as brutal as a carbon tax <laughs> might be the only way that you know these alternative forms of production that are more resource efficient are actually fully supported and i guess it would be a way to disincentivize the more resource um sort of greedy sort of forms of production that are still in play so that's the as far as i can see is the strongest argument in favor of not not a urban food revolution in terms of it somehow subsuming uh, more traditional forms of, of food production out you know outside the city limits but seeing a massive growth in it on the basis that the food's being pre- particularly highly perishable food is getting produced so close to where where the population density yeah. is so you're minimizing your losses post harvest you know whereas many parts of the world you're seeing 30 40% of the sort of farm gate crop lost before it makes it mm-hmm. to a plate, so that seems a very strong argument for it just on, just on that alone. So, listeners will no doubt be wondering because I'm wondering why is this your battle to fight? Because it feels that like you've had had a lot of doors slammed in your face on this one, you know. And there's you know how there's only so much rejection you you can put up with. Well, I mean, one thing about architects is that we you know we've got this skill set. We produce buildings, right? We design them. We should be able to design any building, but more than anything, we need to be able to sort of discipline a conversation about what the building is going to be with the client, with the engineer, with the all the various members of the design team. That's really what our skill set is. Now, I've decided to just have one specialism. One thing that I really care about that is slightly off the beaten path when it comes to the sort of traditional architectural practice 
And that's the thing that I've decided, okay, I'm going to specialize and wherever possible, I'll introduce that into the conversation. And so at the moment, I'm, I, I have a day job. I work at a, 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 at a practice. I also have private work on the side. So, you know, anything from residential extensions to a nightclub in Tottenham. And then I have my specialism. And my specialism sometimes comes into the, you know, housing that I'm doing at the moment in Plymouth. Um, it's for, you know, over 65s. So the rooftop greenhouse is a perfect example of active aging. Um, or something that you know encourages active aging and, and works really well within the model. So I find myself in a position where I can speak authoritatively about like what the requirements are for a rooftop greenhouse uh, quite early on. Whereas normally, what, what what would happen is you'd have to appeal to the client to say, "Could you hire a horticultural consultant to sort of advise on, you know, what what you need for a greenhouse, what the loading requirements, etc." It is. So I guess. It, at, at a very sort right. of individually selfish level, right. I've, I've added a bit more value to my offering as an architect. But I also have this um, itch <laughs> that I just need to scratch. And the itch that I need to scratch relates to this idea about um, putting things in the right place. Now, every architect kind of should have that itch, right? It's just like... The, where do you put walls? Where do you put things so that they are in the right place? And the th rooftops continue to be a source of uh, deep desperation for me when they're not properly used. And, and, and there's a very core idea with this. We get energetic income from the sun. At the moment, we're drawing down from our savings that are, have a renewal phase of 50 million years. And we're drilling down into the ground rather than looking up at the source of income that we already get. Mm -hmm. And so I think at the core of all of this, there's this idea of energetic reorientation. And where that's going to, the, the battleground for that particular event is going to be the roofscape. It's going to be within cities. What are we doing with the tops of our buildings, with the skin that interfaces with, you know, the sources of water, the sources of, um, solar energy, um, access to strong winds, it's the roofscape. And given that the roofscape has been such a passing thought in the 20th century, and then, you know, it's, it's starting now, you know. Your narrative in terms of your specialism, I'm only mm. understanding now that, you know, it's, there's a broader yeah. vision there um, that beyond food production. I just wonder if the, you know, the narrative around it um is you know it, 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 it is partly where where you're getting stuck no i mean again it's the, the the initial reception is this is a great idea we really like it uh, but we can't do it. it it really comes it's it's the idea has never really sort of um hit any walls the idea is fine it's just the technical delivery um or the, or, or the no. above and beyond levels of commitment that you kind of need, i.e. <laughs> um, I mean, people are just really busy <laughs> most of the time. But all the people that you need to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the bandwidth issue, like, like the, 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 the stakeholder described it as, isn't it? It's too hard to do. Um, and 
I mean, you know, there's 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 a broken experience <laughs> right there, right? It's 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 when you can't do it, but you think it's a good idea. How how can you pass that on? And and you can't pass it on, or the people haven't figured out a way to do that in an app. Um, so a lot of these ideas just stay a little bit stagnant, or maybe they they get put on the sort of back burner, um, maybe for retrieval later down the line. Now, again, you know. Food prices will be a factor. Um, concern over, you know, food is a major factor in China at the moment, such that apparently there are sort of rooftop gardens where you pay both for the produce that you grow as well as the membership fees per month for growing, uh, being able to grow food up there. Also, I bet. You even pay for the right to be able to get your hands dirty and do it yourself. Yeah. Exactly, because the because of the concerns over you know sort of you know well, it's chemical residues and so on from chemical from, residues from in, in the periodic contaminated soil. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it'll be one of those ones. It'll be one of those conditions that maybe sort of pushes it over the line. I mean, in the case of something in Sons and Camden Goods Yard, you know, you just had um, Barrett Homes and Morrison's seemingly sort of saying okay well you know let's let's put a chili farm on top and camden council seem to have replied very favorably so it's it's bizarre i don't think there is again for new builds i don't think the opposition would be too strenuous for retrofits it it just naturally will be you know it's it's fascinating thank you for taking the time to sort of explain the detail of it for for listeners because i think for most people this this will be you know kind of a whole new world to them in terms of understanding this particular area that you're working on the other thing people would be inter- interested in though is 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 you know your personal battles you know aside from what you're working on it's the how are you keeping yourself motivated it's it's quite simple it's to-do lists and a pushy jewish girlfriend um <laughs> that's, that's, that's it that's that's the that's the core of it um my, my girlfriend's great in that respect she really sort of you know when because the the inevitable sort of like oh god's sake moments come along and then she just looks at me and sort of tears it down and sort of rebuilds it and says carry on <laughs> and yeah you need you need a bit of that and then it's it, the, the to-do list is kind of like my own personal way of like, well, I've got, I've got to take that off. I've got to take that off. <laughs> and then you kind of um, develop self-generated OCD and that helps just to get the things done. And then you just have to think about different ways to approach it. So, you know, different, is, is it spending eight hours in front of Google Maps finding um, rooftops with access that are flat and, um, approximately 150 square meters. Is it is it that, or is it going to straight to the developers and sort of badgering them? Or <laughs> you you just got to keep on introducing energy into that sort of equation. <laughs> Are there kind of um, architect idols, or you know, people who've been inspirations to you who face similar battles, but you know, in their generation? You know, who who really try? Well, you know, we're ahead of their time. You know, we're, we're trying to advance an argument for something architectural, falling on deaf ears a lot of a lot of years, and then you know, eventually it it had its moment, and 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 you know, is mainstreamed or you know, is much more accepted now. Um, 
the one that springs to mind is Michael Reynolds um, and Earthship Biotecture. Um, you may have seen some images. They tend to be things that get sort of uh, posted on mm-hmm. social media. It doesn't this look beautiful? And it's made out of, you know, empty bottles. And um, there's a documentary called Garbage Warriors uh, where he talks about his um, struggle to get an area of, uh, is it the Nevada desert? I'm not entirely sure. Uh, about permission to be able to sort of experiment with lots of different, with, with his Earth, Earthship sort of um, format in, in this area of the desert and how he appealed to Congress to, to, to get that permission to, to be able to build whatever he wanted. Um, but by that point, I mean, he'd already kind of solidified what he was doing. It's, it, it was never going to be mainstream because ultimately he's making housing or buildings out of um, garbage. Um, so that's, that's not going to have exact mainstream appeal. But nevertheless, it's admired because these buildings also represent our best sort of off-the-grid solutions to living in the desert. And, and living anywhere in the world, in fact, because he's, he's sort of applied the models all over. And so he really is a bit of an off-grid hero. And off-grid is, 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 is a concept that is, if not adopted, it's definitely much more recognised. I think at some point everyone sort of says, oh, God, I wish I just lived, <laughs> you know, completely off the grid in the middle of nowhere and didn't have to deal with this existence. But so Michael Reynolds will be one. I mean... The, what you're talking about is also very, you know, the kind of Ayn Rand, <laughs> fountainhead sort of um, idea, you know, um, the, 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 the struggle and how that sort of contributes to a paradigm shift. Well, what I'm pointing to is, is you know, it's being ahead of your time or out of step with the mainstream <clears throat> in your profession. That Those that came before <clears throat> but aren't around anymore. They they would probably talk about itches to be scratched, yeah. in the same way as you as you've had. You, you you can't explain why you need to do this, but you kind of you have to. You kind of have to. Um, I mean, it gets you know it gets dangerous when you. I mean, you you kind of have to, but there is also another risk. The, the, the bit that drives you crazy, and fortunately, I haven't. You know, I've, I've had the right kind of support around me to not sort of let it get that. But um, is when it becomes all all encompassing. There also has to be a degree of letting go. Now, blending what I'm what I specialise in with a day job, with um, you know other work that I do on the side, also helps to do that. So, I mean, yeah, I can see how that that helps you manage your it, risks. Yeah, exactly. You have to diversify your risks, um, but also you just never know how it's going to end up happening i.e my day job is just as equally sort of uh has as much potential in liberating a, a rooftop greenhouse or, or leading to a rooftop greenhouse as me you know contacting developers and building owners you know and spending hours on google earth and and and, and email you just never know who you meet. Ultimately, it's it's down to chance. It's down to sort of meeting the right person at the right time in the right place and the right project. Um, but more than anything, I guess, like if, if there's anything to impart, it's 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 always make sure that people know that you are available to do that thing. Um, it's it's you know, and I've been terrible at maintaining my website and my social media, but 
and and people who've been far more successful than me on, on, on these things have, have consistently been very good at making sure that it's always known that they are still doing what they're doing even if it's you know hitting walls they, they, they still mean to be presence yeah. and there's constant energy sort of being pummeled into it so yeah i mean that's because uh, you like you say you you've no idea if if i mean by by making it known that you're still working on it yeah you may get a call tomorrow from someone who's just taken over a um a, an old building yeah. And love and loves what you're doing, and and has got the energy and the bandwidth to uh, to just push it Indeed. through. Uh, and away you go. And there's and there have been moments like that, and unfortunately, all of them have fallen through. <laughs> <laughs> but there will but be there one. Will be one. All I need is one. I mean, that's the thing with the 140 buildings. Um, you know, when I'm sort of tearing my eyebrows out trying to find out who the owners of these buildings are. I'm saying to myself, all I need is one, <laughs> all I need is one, and nodding. Like, <laughs> will, will you settle for one? Uh, what, what does one have to turn into? Well, one... What, what does good well, look like when, you, when, you're looking, when you're looking back on your oh, one, one would be a rooftop greenhouse hydroponics school that washes its face. That would be ideal. I mean, it doesn't... The, the other thing is, it's nice to fantasize, but if it doesn't wash its face, if it ends up being an abject failure, fair enough. But the point is, I've scratched my itch. You know, when sometimes you just meet people who've just gone through life and completely failed all the way through and still survived and had a really sort of good life but didn't quite do much. And you kind of go, well, that's kind of what life is like. I sometimes fear that I could be one of those, and but maybe I should be resigning myself to that. Um, but ultimately, I mean, I, I also have a friend called Belina Raffi who does um, uh, sustainable stand-up uh, sort of courses. It's for people in the sustainability field. And I think because of all of this, because of all this sort of the legacy, because of the kind of the weight of the kind of challenge that we've set ourselves, um, we sometimes forget to use humour in, in, in kind of treating the wound. <laughs> Um, and that's exactly where she steps in and sort of teaches you how to sort of. I can tell. I, I can say to myself, "We'll get there in the end. We'll get there in the end." After a while, it just becomes background noise. <laughs> Ultimately, what's important is my my to do list and avoiding my nagging girlfriend. <laughs> Oscar, fantastic! It's been a, a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, thank you so much for joining us on Change Hackers. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dave. I'm your host, Tony Cook, and I'm on a mission to provide inspiration and insight for people changing their world. So check out changehackers.org to read show notes, guest blogs, and subscribe to access bonus content. Remember, this show's for you and change hackers like you. So drop me a line, tell me what you love, what you hate, or ideas you have for improving the show. And let me know if you know someone who'd make a great guest on this show. Maybe a friend, someone you work with, maybe even you. Just use the contact form at changehackers.org. I'd love to hear from you. Till next time, change hackers. <laughs>